Welcome to episode 12 of Accessible Finance, where we demystify personal financial topics and answer your questions. So you leave saying, I get it now. I'm Eric Johns. And I'm Rachel Johns. Let's dive in. All right, Eric, what's on the agenda for today? So it's a bit of a broad topic, but I think it's going to be I think it's going to be relevant to everyone, right? And that is, what do you select within your retirement plan? So not everyone's going to have individual brokerage accounts with you know lots of dollars in them and have to make important decisions there. But almost everyone I would expect is going to be involved in their employer plan at work. So 401k, um, you know, 401a, 403b, 457b. There's a lot of there's a lot of numbers and letters, and it's all cute and it relates to tax. I would imagine care. most people probably don't even know like what the what code it even is. is for sure, it, sure. You know, you have an employer plan. That's great. Right, and you're going to um, defer some dollars in there. So we're doing episode on how to choose what's in there. Correct. I think starting with the fact that you get to choose is an important point. Sure. That's a good point. And real quick before before we dive in, nothing we say today should be construed as financial advice. It is very important that if we say generally it is appropriate for whatever, that does not mean that it is appropriate for you. And you mm-hmm. should always consult your financial advisor or financial professional before you make these decisions. Or just know that in, in no way are we advocating a specific decision that you should make personally. Correct. Because as you like to say on every podcast, it depends. it depends. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> it's very unique and very specific. Right. Um, okay. So point number one to be made is that if you're contributing to your company retirement plan, you still have decisions to make. Yes. Correct. There there often is a default allocation, right? And, and a lot of what, what companies will do is they'll default you into a target retirement fund based on your age. And so they'll just shoot for the year that you're closest to 65. And then they'll they'll target date that year. Does that make any sense? Okay. So sometimes they do that, but oftentimes they don't. Yeah. So what they'll do is you'll be sitting in cash. And like we've said a number of times in the past with uh, Roth IRAs, some people think, you, you know like to make the assumption that if you contribute to a Roth IRA, that's an investment, but it's not actually. It's just an account that could hold investments, right? It's an account type that hold account type that holds investments. Therefore, you need to make your allocation decisions within that. Right. So anyway, uh, there are companies where you will defer money into a 401k or a simple IRA is one that's a, a very good example. That is going to be completely managed by the individual. There's usually not an advisor on the account, not a third party administrator. So the company will administer the, the simple IRA account. You will make your deferral and then it will show up in an account that you have direct access to. So it's like essentially just like putting it in a bucket. Yeah, and you, if you don't do you anything do with, it, with it, it's just sitting in cash. And when I when we say cash, we're not even talking about money market funds because a lot of times the two are conflated. Like a lot of times people will say like, oh, I'm in cash right now because it's yielding over 5%. What they mean is not that they have cash under their mattress and somebody's right. some fairy is going to pay them so 5%. Like sitting in a bank account. Or right. even in a checking account, right? It's right. not. It's going to be in a money account, money market account or a high yield savings account or even short-term T-bills. And that's what they're talking about paying them 5.25 to 5.5% annual yield because that's the current federal funds rate. But the idea is anyway, you need to know where your money is and what you're what you're getting there. So Okay. So you're putting money into the account. Where should you start? Like what's step one? What should you think about? Um, you should think about what your time horizon is, right? As with any investment decision, you want to think about time horizon first. Right. And typically with these accounts, particularly if you're young. So, so you know, you might be contributing to these accounts. You might be 65 and you're ready to work until you're 70. In that case, you're probably going to have a very different allocation or time horizon, right? You need that money in five years. Right. Whereas somebody that's young, you know, our age and they're in their late 30s, um, they might they might still have 30 years of work. Right. So if you've got a 30-year time horizon, most people would say maybe the equity market is the place to be, or at least that's what you should be considering. 
Um, so the point that we would make, I think, generally speaking, very generally broadly speaking, if you do not know what you're doing, right, and your risk tolerance is about average, a target date fund is not the worst idea. And again, just to be clear, the target date fund is a fund that will set assets, um, meeting kind of what that um, given risk profile would be as you progress through those 30 years. Correct. Right? What they'll do is what's commonly referred to as glide path, which means you might start with an allocation that's like 95% stocks and 5% bonds, and you will gradually drift to an allocation that's a lot closer to like 60-40 or 50-50 even. Right, so more heavily weighting the bonds Correct. as you get yeah, closer Yeah, your bonds to are good. yeah, you're basically you're going to be selling stocks and buying bonds over your career over sure. a very slow um you know, you know, it's not going to happen all at once. And it makes so sense it's gradual. given I think in one of our previous podcasts you'd mentioned that you know, every 7 years or so you would expect that the um stock market enters some type of recessionary period or a decline, right? Correct. So if it turns out that it's that happens to align with the time period that you're retiring and needing to withdraw your money. At that point, having everything weighted in the market the same way that it is when you're in your mid late thirties um, can be kind of scary. Yeah. And there's two points that we want to make there. So one that you made that, that was great is that recessions is if a recession will happen. Right. A recession will happen. What that what a recession is is two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth or contraction in the United States economy, which is typically it doesn't have to be, but it's very typically accompanied by a drop in the equity markets. Mm. So your your investments in stocks will drop. That's going to happen. If you're not comfortable with that ever happening and you think it should only go up, you're gonna have to be in like a money market fund. But you have to acknowledge that you're leaving a lot of risk-adjusted returns on the table that way. Okay. Does that make sense? Like you will not have long-term return as high as somebody that's in equity markets, at least if the markets operate in the way they have since, you know, the, the Great Depression, since mm -hmm. the early 1900s. Okay. So then let's say you've kind of narrowed down where your retirement date is. So you have kind of, you figured out essentially, am I looking to invest for a longer term, like a 30 plus year period, or am I looking to invest for a five, 10 year period? Um, so knowing that should affect kind of where my risk profile is. So now we need to look at essentially what type of retirement options um, or fund options are available within your like employer workplace plan. Am I expected to know like I should invest in Apple now, but then I need to get out of Apple in like a few months. Like, am I looking at specific companies? Well, most 401ks are not even going to have that as an option. And thank goodness, because I feel like Correct. that's yeah, a not... terrifying adventure to take on. Right. Usually, I mean, the broadly, the industry as a whole has adopted what we can, what we have uh, talked about here a little bit before, and that is semi-strong efficient market mm -hmm. hypothesis. And that is the idea that it's very, very difficult, if not impossible, to beat the market on a risk-adjusted basis yeah. over the long term. Somebody, some, yeah, you you definitely will get lucky every every now and then. Like you might go all in on Nvidia, and then oh look, we had an AI boom, and, and you're good to go. Yeah, or you Congratulations. might have just timed GameStop really well. Yes, yeah. correct. That has happened, and I would never do that again. <laughs> that was uh, a very lucky Dicey mistake, roll. and had to do entirely with the bigger fool theory rather than I knew. Some, better than someone else. Sure. Bigger Fool Theory, by the way, just as a little yeah, please, never shout out it. to uh, Random Walk Down Wall Street is a great book. If you're looking to do your own uh, investing, I would highly recommend A Random Walk Down Wall Street by Burton Malkiel. Um, anyway, I think he was a Harvard economist. But 
he uh bigger fool theory he talks about in that book and it's the idea that you're buying something in the hopes that a bigger fool than you will come along and buy it from you from a high for a higher price got it right so you're basically trading volatility or like sentiment rather than trading like the value of the underlying assets anyway that's an aside okay but with you following like the head of the emotional ride you ran a walk though it's a great book especially if you're gonna be doing this stuff yourself this is this is basically a diy podcast if you're looking for i don't want to pay anybody I want to do things myself. Here's how you should be thinking about doing Correct. it. Correct. Right. Well, the only, the other point to make, right. When we're talking about what to, so your fun, your, your, what happens if your plan does not have a target date fund where you can't just pick the target date and, 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 and hang out there. Okay. So you can't be like, you know, the 2035 or mm-hmm. 2055. Right. There are some date, right? general principles you'll want to know. One is that while bonds are thought of as kind of a safe haven and much more like less volatile investment, I think it's important to know in the year 2022, and there's a number of reasons this happened and we can articulate almost all of them because there have been there have been countless seminars and experts that we've listened to discuss this. Um, so if you want, if you want that, call us and I'll happily I'll happily talk to you Come about Jack. it. But um, it's important to know that bond funds are not immune to market downturns. What that means is in 2022. Um, the, the, the equity markets went down. So if you had the ticker VTI, which is like the total U.S. Dom- domestic market, the return on the U.S., the compound annual growth rate of the U.S. market, which is just what happened annually in the U.S. market, it decreased 19.51%. So let's call it round Ooh, up to 20%. It's a tough so, one. so stocks, U.S. stocks went down 20%. What happened to U.S. bonds? If you were invested in long-term U.S. corporate bonds, they went down 25.52%. That's almost, you know, that's, that's let's call, call it 25%. That's worse than stocks. How does that happen? That's like 25% worse than yeah. the stocks, too. That's Well, it's, it's a full so 5% worse, you're saying. Stocks right, are about 20. They were about 25. Sure, but it's, I mean, 25% of that 20. Yes, 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 correct, correct. Exactly. I'm sorry. I that's be... a significant, I know. Yeah, I need to, I need to Don't trust the math. math. <laughs> yeah, she's got it. But, um, but got that's it. huge. And I would definitely say that my understanding, um, my very surface level understanding of stocks and bonds was essentially that like stocks have higher upsides and lower low sides and mm-hmm. bonds are kind of more controlled where, you know, uh, you will absorb the losses much easier because it's going to be smaller losses, but you're going to be more conservative on the gains. Right. So um, what I'm, what I'm, what we're, tr- the point we're trying to make here is duration matters or term matters. So this was Vanguard long-term corporate bonds. Okay. Okay. So long-term corporate bonds, like lost more than the total U.S. stock market. However, short-term treasuries only lost 3.86%. So call it 4%. So when stocks went down 19 and a half, they went down almost four. But I would okay. say that the average person would kind of lump bonds and treasuries and things like that kind of in a similar right. boat. That, that's the thing. We we need to make sure that we're differentiating here. Okay. So uh, explain it like I'm five version of differentiating between the treasuries and the bonds yeah. and short-term versus long-term. Right. Um, because this level of volatility- it's going to be uncomfortable. Yeah. Very many. Exactly. Especially if you thought you were being safe investing in long-term corporate bonds. You think you're doing doing the right thing there, protecting yourself from these sleepless nights when your portfolio goes down. And you would think long-term is more stable than short-term. Yeah, Um, it is not. That is for sure incorrect. So when the federal, uh, when, when the Fed um, thought of as, you know, the, the Federal Reserve and the the open market committee, I'm sorry, FOMC chairman chaired by Jerome Powell, they adjust interest rates. Okay. Or discount rates. So they adjust the discount rate. That's what they're going to pay on overnight lending to, to banks. 
So when the, the, they raise interest rates, the value, the current market value of long-term bonds are most affected. So the longer the term, the longer, well, it's longer the duration, which is usually like time to maturity. Let's think of it that way. Like, so usually thought of as how long until the bond matures. So the longer the bond, the more volatile the price is and the more sensitive they are to raising or lowering interest rates. That's so interesting to me because I would definitely imagine that, like in my mind, I'm thinking a long-term period, if you have spikes, since it's kind of over a longer-term period, that those spikes would kind of be less um, felt via the ripples or whatever you want to, however you want to describe that, right? Whereas a short-term bond, if I have a a bond that's like a year long, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot that happens in that year, right? And and it's it's all over the place. I would imagine that would greatly affect my short-term bond. So I feel like that's kind of um, unintuitive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, that I mean that's that's how it works. Right. So I think it's an important thing. To, yeah. yeah. So to short term. Sure. So term. So short versus long short term bonds are going to be a lot less volatile, which means they will care a little bit less about what the Fed does with interest rates because there's they're going to be less exposed to those decisions. They're going to be exposed for less um, lengthy of a term. Time, right, yeah. Right? So like if it's a short term two month bond, I only have to deal with the interest rate for two months, whereas if it's a 30 year I have to now deal with the fact that I'm being paid a lower interest rate than the Fed just increased rates to for a longer period of time. And so the differentiation anyway, between short and long term is where? Like, what is that time cut off? Oh, we're talking like two or less years and then like 30, okay. 30 years or more. So, I mean, it depends. So there's short, intermediate, and long, right? Intermediate's around like eh, seven to 10 years. Long term okay. is like 30-ish years or 20 plus years. Got it, got it. Um, short, we're talking one to two. And those differentiate from treasuries? Yes. Wow. The well, short term can be either. The the you're talking corporate versus treasury? Yes, yes, yes. Um corporate bonds have some non-zero default rate, which means that companies can fail. We generally think of the United States government, the full faith and credit of the United States government right. as infallible. The United States government can print money when they need it. They could, you know, issue the, so like we generally think when they run out of money, they'll just print more money. They'll just sure. raise the debt ceiling and keep going. Granted, her son asked us to get the issues. government to print more money yesterday. <laughs> right. Um, okay. So then do you pay a premium when you're buying treasuries as opposed to corporate um bonds for that kind of additional security? The yield will be lower, yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So you're paying a premium. Yes, you're compensated for the additional risk you take from buying corporates with a higher yield. Got it. But anyway, the the way we would think about it too, though, is you. I mean, there's a number of ways people will talk about stocks and bonds in a portfolio. We look at bonds as an offset to the risk that you're taking with stocks, so you wouldn't want to have a ton of risk in your bond um, allocation, which would generally lean into like short-term government bonds, and then you would rebalance with those to buy more stocks, essentially, if you're young enough. But back to this was all a long winded way to make the point. Guys, just make sure that you understand what kind of a bond fund you are buying, right? If you're buying these longer term corporate funds, you might perceive a lot less risk than you're actually signing up for. I would absolutely think that if I see the word bond in my retirement plan and I'm thinking, okay, I want to be pretty conservative, I would think anything that has the word bond in it is infinitely more safe than any kind of, um, right you know, equity or anything. Right. Like that. Right. And I think on average, while that might be correct on in, in certain circumstances, it's very much not. And people, I don't think realize that. Yeah. 
It's an important point. So, all right, back to, okay, I don't have a target date fund. If you do have a target date fund and you don't want to do very much of this research, you don't really want to dive in, trust the experts and buy a low cost target date fund. That's not the worst idea. Again, not financial advice. You should consider your own risk tolerances and everything. Sure. What the target date fund is going to assume is that you have roughly average risk tolerance and risk capacity. Um, we've talked about those in past episodes. Risk tolerance is how much risk you're willing to take. Risk capacity is how much risk you need to take to yeah. achieve your goals. Um, so anyway, target date fund, reasonable to just do, right? Like they, they are sensible. Let Vanguard rebalance it for you. Um, if you ascribe to semi-strong efficient market hypothesis, which is you're not beating the market unless you have insider information, you're not trying to time anything, then target date fund is completely sensible. If you do not have a target date fund, what should you do? Um, there are a number, like I would, I would say you should read around walk down wall street first, right? Like, so, so get a little bit educated. Yeah. Maybe go to some Boglehead forums. If you want to do that, uh, Boglehead is the name given to the followers of, uh, John Bogle mm -hmm. who started uh Vanguard. So they, he, and he was a big proponent of ETFs. So index, um, exchange traded funds or index funds, which are basically you buy a little bit of everything. Cause we have no idea who's going to win. Yeah, yeah. We have no idea who's going to win. So we just buy the broad market and then you enjoy the returns of the broad market over time for a very low cost. So low cost, like if you ascribe to that, again, if you think that there, there are active managers that can beat the market, then you obviously like, I mean, we would just philosophically disagree yeah. and you, you do your own thing, like good luck. Right. But if you think that there, nobody's beating the market, you want exposure at the lowest expense. So you want just exposure to the correct asset allocation at the correct expense ratio. So maybe you decide 80, 20 is the right allocation for you. Sure. We're looking for a little bit U S market. We would generally say about 65 or 70 percent u.s market and then you want um 30 35 international equity market and then the other you could you can go with you could either break it up with an in um domestic and international stocks but but you would want some exposure to the stock um the i mean i'm sorry yeah, stocks i meant bonds um you would want sure. some exposure to the bond market so you could just shove it into like bnd or like a typical vanguard total u.s bond market ticker it's going to have, you know, whatever your retirement plan has. As right, well. right. That's the thing. You don't get to choose. Right. So some of them are going to be, you know, they're going to be, um, they're going to, they're just going to, they're going to give you some allocation. Whatever Not everybody's even going to have Vanguard. They might have just like American funds. So you're looking through your Correct. plan. You're looking for low cost funds. Now, just generally say, speaking, you want exposure to U.S. stocks, international right. stocks, bonds. That's it. Now, when you say you're looking for low cost, um, I feel like it is unbelievably cumbersome to try to figure out what that is and where to find it. There's so much small print um, trying to navigate through kind of what that expense ratio is. Um, it's challenging to find. And if you don't know what you're looking for or what it means, you'll never find it. Sure. There, well, the uh, the 401k charge, the plan charges, I think are very well hidden. Yes. And they are, I mean, in my mind, like borderline, like nefariously so, right? Well, like, that's, that's, yes, that's fair. The expense ratios of the funds should be, they should give you like a, they'll give you like a, a list of all the funds available in the plan. And expense ratio is typically one of the columns. So like they will have a column and they're going to say like 0.04%. That's going to be a, that would be considered a very low cost fund okay. or something like 0.5% or like 50 basis points. That's kind of high. We're getting pretty high at that point. So like you can generally, the Vanguard funds, I mean, we're, we're fans of Vanguard. It's shareholder owned. Um, so 
they're gonna they're gonna typically be they they were the initial like low cost ETF providers. Now almost everybody has some kind of low cost funds, mm-hmm. and then some of the four hundred one k plans will offer you what are called like actively managed funds, or if you see an expense ratio that's over one percent, so like one point one, one point five, whatever. When you see expense ratios that high, that means you are paying for the skill of the person that's managing your month that fund to to outperform the market, to know better than you and everyone else out there what's going to happen and to act accordingly. So you are paying for active management. So to go but back yeah, to what you, you were saying, right, if, you if you believe in management's great, yeah. do it. But if you believe if you in semi-strong market, market yeah, hypothesis, yeah. you should never you should buy not it. ever be paying. I'm sorry. You should not ever be paying. Uh, but I like Toro and Pitts, right? Uh. That's just how it goes. Um, but yeah, if you believe in semi-strong efficient market hypothesis, you should not be willing to pay more. For somebody to beat the market because on average doesn't believe that those, yeah correct i do not think that that happens personally and i honestly think i mean the thing is people aren't coming you you don't have any recourse if you pay for that and then they don't outperform the market they haven't promised you this they've just essentially sold you something saying we can do this um so if you are paying for something like that they don't outperform the market you can't go back with pitchforks and be like right. ah you broke your con-. like that it doesn't work that way. Right. Um so they get that money regardless. Correct. Um So know what expense ratios you're paying, know what you're getting for that, right? Like know what you're actually paying for. So like there's some cost just to make the uh, the sheer magnitude of trades and to look at everything and to put it all and plug it all into software and yeah. to integrate it all. So there's been, nobody's going to have a zero expense ratio correct that's not entirely true there are some loss leaders at fidelity but you have to be in fidelity and it's not within 401k plans to my knowledge but anyway um fidelity does have an s&p 500 uh etf that zero percent expense rabbit ratio. hole here yeah i know i um, went down it yeah but rule of thumb is that there's going to be expenses associated with it right but you're just looking be. to minimize them whenever and so you can. what would you say is a reasonable so under band? under about 20 basis points or 0.2 percent 0.2% or less, that's considered pretty low cost. Okay. If you're above 50 basis points or 0.5%, I would consider that, okay, we're thinking this is probably active. This better be actively managed. I would not want to pay 50 basis points or more, 0.5%, unless some I was paying for somebody's expertise and skill in doing the things, right? And yeah. picking the stocks, picking the bonds. You're, pretty significant yeah, for something significant. that kind of self Think about it this way, right? Like you're getting charged that amount of money every year, regardless of what happens in, in the 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 actual fund itself right like they could be losing to the market and then you right. pay them 50 more basis points to to do that for that for the privilege of having yeah. them lose for you and to be clear if somebody's trying to actively manage your funds right in order to prove that they're actively managing i would imagine that they engage in like relative more frequent trading than would otherwise take place yes and for those trades there's typically a cost that's associated with each trade. I mean, it's, it's de minimis, right? But when you're trading, um, you're looking at some type of expense to the point where some of the actively managed funds may even fall into, not that this is the norm, but I mean, I have seen in my career pre-teaching um, actively managed funds by people that engaged in churning. So like regular sales for the sake of selling, for the sake of saying, look, I, I traded or I bought, you know, 800 different things for you this quarter, um, which is absolutely bananas. That used to be a lot more of a problem than it is today. Costs of transactions yes. plummeted. Okay. They're almost zero. In most cases, in the low-cost brokerages, they are actually zero. 
So when I say low cost brokerages, I'm talking Schwab, Fidelity, Vanguard. Mm -hmm. They are actually zero. Like I can go buy Apple stock and sell Apple stock and pay zero dollars and zero cents for the transaction. What about I? I noticed you did not say nationwide, which is where. Well, Nationwide is charging you, um, what was it, 83 basis points mm -hmm. for the privilege of having a 401k. So they yeah. charge you 83 basis points on your plan per year. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Um, 401k plans charge a, a, a decent amount. And that's not even that doesn't even have to do with your fund selection. Correct. So you'll pay 83 basis points to the plan. It's 83 to put the money in the bucket. Right. Right. And then your funds will also have an expense ratio associated with it. Correct. And then if you pay for active management on top of that, then you would pay an additional expense Correct. ratio. So again, there are Please lots about this industry up. that yeah. people don't necessarily yeah, love. And there's good reason for that. I uh, I certainly can sympathize. And this is why in one of the previous podcasts, you even had mentioned this. Being able, like if you're in an employer plan where they offer some type of matching, oh, yeah, contributing up to the matching is huge. But then frequently, that's not enough to necessarily target the amount of money you would need for retirement. So depending upon situation, again, not, like financial advice for you individually, but oftentimes what we may recommend is something along the lines of, yes, contribute up to the matching of your plan. If you have a great plan, like a truly great employer plan, like provided plan, then you might contribute the rest and the remainder that you need for retirement there. Otherwise, you may set up your own separate account through one of those low, like Fidelity, Schwab, et cetera, um, to really kind of make up the difference between what you would be contributing for matching from work and what you truly need for retirement. Mm -hmm. um, so personally, that's what I do. That's what we do. Yeah. Yeah. Take the match and then invest the rest in the best 401k plan. Cause right. there will be differences between yours and your spouses. There will almost definitely, unless you're at the same employer. Correct. Anyway, guys. All right. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, please follow and review the show. And if you have any topics you'd like discussed or financial problems you'd like solved, reach out to us at podcast at equilibriumfp.com or visit our website, website at equilibriumfp.com. Yeah. Till next time. All right. Thanks.